Well, we are in our series called Playlist, The Road Home. And I don't know if you all know this, but we, the creative team has been writing a new song for each week. So we're traveling through these psalms. And the psalms are called the Psalms of Ascent. And that's where the name Playlist, The Road Home comes from. Ascent means pilgrimage. And so God's people, up to three times a year, would take a spiritual pilgrimage to go to their true home, the city of God. And then they would travel up the mountain, Mount Zion, the Mount of Joy, and there they would walk into the presence of God and be filled with who He is and what He's done for them. And then they would have rest, and then they would come back to their homes changed. And the same is true for all of us. You, each and every one of you, you're on a spiritual journey. And it's one journey through this life towards your true eternal home on the celestial shores of paradise. But at the same time, each day and each week, you're taking a journey. And the idea is you go up to the mount where God's presence is, and you come back changed. We're adventurers, wayfarers, pilgrims, we're voyagers, and today my hope is that you will open up your door and you will look out and you will hope and you will set your eyes upon the mount and you would take the journey there and then you would come back home changed. And today we're arriving at Psalm 131. It is the second shortest psalm in all of the psalms, but it is probably the one that takes the longest to learn. Today is about changing directions and hoping. And then in your daring to hope, what happens is you become stripped of pride and you find a contentment no matter what's happening around you. So it's dealing with your pride, it's checking your contentment, and it's daring to hope. And when you do that, what you're going to find is you return home changed. And you return home whole, more complete. So here's our Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Now this is a good thing. I'll explain it. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. All right, first point, a quick point. The whole person. Our psalm is talking about the heart. Now, the heart in the Bible includes your emotions, but it's so much more than that. It includes your mind and your will. It includes your thinking and your feeling and your acting. And then we have our eyes. The eyes are the way that you take in the world around you. The eyes are the are the way that you see how you stand before God, how you stand before the world. And then, the soul. Or kind of thought of as the throat, the, the air that you are breathing, your very breath. And what's happening is you have this thing in you, your soul, that craves and longs for God and longs for home. And then we have this line, I do not concern myself. Now, there's a little strange thing happening here. You only catch it in the Hebrew, but it's about your feet or it's about walking. And so it's about concerning yourself with the ways of God, the thinking of God, the mind of God, the road of God, and then following it. It's a picture of a whole person, complete. 
And in order to become this holy, complete person, the very first thing we have to start dealing with is your pride. So point two, pride. It says, the heart is not lifted up, and my eyes are not raised too high. Now this is like, we read this, and we're not really sure what it means. So you start like looking at some other translations. The NIV translates it as, my heart is not too proud, and my eyes are not too haughty. So what you see is this idea of lifted up. This is you lifting yourself up, lifting your eyes to something that is beyond you that maybe you shouldn't be lifting your eyes to. You say, well, What is that? I mean, shouldn't we be dreaming of of things that are greater and beyond us? And the answer is yes and no. Because when it says, I don't concern myself with great matters, that's referring to the salvation that is offered in God. What it's getting at by not lifting your eyes up to that salvation is you have been humbled to the core to know that salvation is beyond your reach. In fact, what this psalm is getting at is that you in your life, you're trying to find salvation that is earthly. You're reaching for things here on this earth that you think if you could just get them, you're going to become complete and you're going to become whole. The problem is the Bible is saying look beyond that, look above that. But as soon as you do that, you see something that is beyond you. And it drains you of all pride and then you realize, oh, this must need to be a gift, a free gift that is offered by God to me that I accept by faith. What this psalm is trying to get you to do is to become the type of person that stops chasing salvation by the approval of others. That stops chasing salvation by your fame with the people among you. That stops chasing salvation by your achievements by what some significant person says to you, by stopping to chasing salvation in gold and silver and money. You stop chasing it in everything else and you find it in him and him alone as a free gift. And what it's saying is then you will become whole. You've got such a small view of what salvation is and you chase it. And you're wasting so much of your life chasing something so tiny. C.S. Lewis talks about, look, he's like, you're playing in mud puddles when there's an ocean before you. So go run to the ocean, and as soon as you see it, you say, it's too big, it's too vast for me, I can't swim it. But you've got a God who comes and walks on the water to come and get you and take you off on this voyage and this journey to everything you're looking for. But you can't cross the waters alone, you need him. And then as soon as you do, you come back changed, return, and more at peace. And if you don't stop with your pride, you're going to chase a salvation that you think you can reach. And you will always be discontent because it will not deliver for you. Rocky Balboa, the great fictional character, this lovable guy who is such an underdog, and we love him because he fights and he can take a punch, and we want to believe that in our lives we can take a punch. We watch him and we say, man, I wish I could be like that. But what drives him? Pride. Now, before you crucify me for talking so badly about your beloved Rocky Balboa, you need to know this. There's a lot of things about you that are very lovable. And it's taking you down the wrong road. Many of you are very lovable. I love you all. But you might be going down the wrong road. 
So Rocky says to his girl, his lady, he says, I wish I could just go the distance to prove that I'm not some bum. To prove, to prove that I am something. Now the irony is that Sylvester Stallone, the one who wrote this screenplay, he wrote it while the story goes, he was a bum, he was homeless. And so this, this is a story about him in a lot of ways. It's an underdog story. And the other irony is, well... He seems in the story, both Sylvester Stallone in getting this deal, but also the story of Rocky, they seem to be ascending. They've reached it. And the problem is what the Bible is saying actually is in their ascent to reach what they're trying to reach, they actually descend. Because it's a fight that's from within. It's a reaching for something that's beyond him. What he's really searching for, at least. He's chasing completeness, and no, no matter how many punches he can take, no, no matter how many times he wins, he will not feel complete by those wins, because there's something that he's craving more than that that's going to put a rest in him. So pride and self-loathing are the exact same thing. Rocky is so consumed with proving to himself and to the world that he is something, that he's not some bum, that he has this self-loathing thing about him, but he thinks that he can actually do it. It's a pride that's there. So there's another version of this. It's the apple. So you say, I don't like who I am, so I'm going to reach for the apple and take it so I can show the world I'm something more. Or it's, I deserve that apple because look how wonderful I am. I'm going to take it because I deserve it. But both are coming from a sense of pride. Like it's mine. I deserve it. So the prideful person thinks highly of themselves. The self-loathing person thinks low of themselves. But there is someone who is complete that has just forgotten about themselves. Not in a bad way, but in a beautiful way. They have peered into the wonder of this free gift of grace and they have become so enamored by it It is so wonderfully glorious to them that they can't take their eyes off of this gift that's being offered to them in Christ. And when they can't take their eyes off of it, guess where their eyes are no longer looking? Upon themselves. What humanity is chasing is something more glorious than itself. So finally, we can be freed from this self-obsession that is terrorizing us. The Christian's been raptured up into something glorious. And they found this gift in Christ, and this psalm is pointing you forward to him. Christ, he accomplished everything for you. He had every bit of fame that he needed in the eyes of his father, the perfect amount of fame. He had all of it, and he gives it to you. So when the father looks and sees you, he sees you with as much delight as he sees his son. You're famous in the eyes of the father. What does that do to somebody? Well... You stop being self-loathing and you realize you received a gift that you didn't deserve so you're drained of pride and now you're looking into this free gift. You're free. And it's not that you're in the middle. It's that you're something altogether different. The gates of peace are only open to to those who know they cannot achieve the peace. It must be a gift. It has to be. It's a peace that's beyond you. You have to reach further, and as soon as you reach further, you find that your hand can't get past this chasm. 
but you have one who's broken open the chasm to come and offer you peace. So now, boom, you have it. You have the peace that you've been tasting. You're complete now because you didn't think that you could get it. So the question is, do you hate yourself? That's pride. Because you think that there's a salvation that you can achieve and you're not achieving it. So it, you, you are ferociously angry at yourself. Or do you think you're so wonderful? You look around at everyone in this room and you're kind of holding your head up high because, well, you're a little bit better than everybody else. And if somebody tells you that you aren't, well, you're going to find some subtle ways to show them that don't seem so prideful, but underneath, oh, there's a stirring pride. And depending on the day, you will find yourself fluctuating between arrogance and self-loathing within the same minute. How is that possible? Because they're made of the same thing. They're made of pride. There's an old hymn. It goes like this. We lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. We lay down this preoccupation with chasing fame and approval and love from a significant other and gold and silver and money and whatever else it might be that you so desperately want, and you find yourself gloriously complete in Him. And that makes you content. This is our third point. It's a calm soul. When you aren't content, it's because within your heart there is a loud voice screaming about all the reasons why you should be envious of people and jealous of other people. Because when you come across somebody who's getting some things that maybe you want, or they're just getting the things that they want, and you're not getting what you want, do you know what that's screaming at you? You are not whole. And maybe they are, which means they have found salvation and you haven't. And that's very disturbing for you. And you're, you're settling for a smaller salvation that hopefully you can reach, and there's other people reaching it, and you're not, and it's driving you crazy. And so you end up competing with the people you ought to be loving. Some of you are very competitive. I've seen you. I know you're very competitive. Now, let me say something. I, we need to clear this up. There's a healthy type of competition and an unhealthy type of competition. The unhealthy is coming from a place of pride, in discontentment that says, I must do better than all to prove to myself and the world that I am worthy of something and I'm not some bum. Wholeness, completeness. But there's a healthy kind of competition that says, there is nothing else that I need. I have everything I already need in Christ. And so then what happens is you begin actually competing, not for a self-glorification, but for the sake of those that are on your team. Now, maybe this gets a little bit closer to it. There's a story about the, um, a player on the L.A. Rams, the team that won the Super Bowl. And he talks about those on his team, and he says, I wasn't competing for myself. I was competing for them, and he named all these people on his team. And I think that's starting to get closer to it. I think that's starting to get, like, to scratch the surface a bit of what it is to, to be lost of this pride and to forget about yourself and to look at others with love and say, I'm for you and I'm fighting for you and I'm competing for you. Some of you never joined the team because you didn't believe in yourself. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe you have no athletic ability at all. I don't know. But what about the other stuff that you didn't do 
or you won't do. Because you're so self-loathing and all you can do is think about yourself over and over and over again of how you probably can't do it. And your biggest problem is you can't just enjoy the things that God has wired you for because you're so terrified of doing them and then becoming less because you're trying to find your identity in those things. There is a way to enjoy the things that God has wired you for and to simply enjoy them and then use them not for your own self-glorification, but for the glorification of God and the good of the people around you. There's a way to do that. And it's very rare that someone becomes that. But it's all right here. It's, it's possible for you to become this. So how do you become content? Well, before I tell you, I used to be a pastor that really cared for people. I still do. But the problem is before, underneath, there was a surface level of care that was there, but I also saw people as things that I can use to make myself feel complete, to make myself feel whole, to make myself feel successful. And it was a long journey to kill that in me. And a lot of it's dead. It died about four years ago. But every once in a while, it starts showing its face again. And when it does, it's always when I'm feeling insecure. Now think about insecurity. It's a turning in on the self. It's becoming obsessed with the self. You keep thinking about how you don't measure up more and more and more. And when you do, now you're not loving people well. Now you need to feel better. And so you start using people to prove yourself. You're using them because you need them so badly to accomplish whatever it is. That's not a soul that is calm or content. It's the soul that is anxiously using people for their own gain. So how do you get contentment? Well, our verse says, you must calm and quiet yourself like a weaned child. Calm and quiet yourself like a weaned child. Now, here's what a weaned child has done. The weaned child is no longer relying on his or her mother for food. And now, this child, though, is still in the arms of its mother. Why? Well, because he or she is simply enjoying his mother. And it's the same thing with God. You get to this point to where you stop going to him in prayer to use him. You stop doing a bunch of good things so you could feel like you've measured up, and now you can ask God for a bunch of stuff. And you start... Just enjoying God. And once you've started doing that, once you started enjoying Him, well, now you're being raptured up in the stuff of heaven. And now you're being raptured up in the stuff that makes you content. The first commandment is to love God. The last commandment is very much like it. It's like a sandwich, and it's to be content. And the way to contentment is by love. And so what what it is, is you've seen the love of God for you. I mean, you've really seen it, and you know it's true, and you feel it, and you look back at him with love, and you're crawling up in his arms, and you're enjoying your moments with him in prayer or in the Bible or whatever. You just know that it's right and it's good. And then contentment starts arising up in you because you're like this child that's just been swept up in the arms of God. And it's a command. Be content. And if God is commanding you to do something, then he is giving you every ability to be able to do it. It's coming from him. And so, yes, so partly the Ten Commandments, they show you that you have a big problem. 
But that problem that you have makes you look to God for grace, and then you become strengthened by grace. So this law or these Ten Commandments, one, they crush you, but they also lift you up if you will realize that you can't meet them on your own. And then once you're lifted up into the arms of God, He strengthens you to be content. You need Him. To love God means you're like that weaned child. You've peered into eternity, and you saw you and God. And you saw that it was good, and it meant something, and it was meaningful, and it was restful, and you were cared for. And no amount of fame, or approval, or money, or accomplishments could give you what you have with him. And so you find that love, and you become content. And you stop using God. You stop marking all these marks and you're like, like you could be here right now because you want God to think that you're trying hard. And if God could see that you're trying hard, maybe he could give you the things that you really want more than God. You're desperate for him to give it to you. And you're desperate for that success, that money, that fame, the accomplishments. And he's just saying, I'm so much greater if you'll just come to me. I will give you rest. So now you do that. You become whole, you become complete, but there's still one thing left. You have to hope. And it's weird. You know, you look at hope and pride and contentment and you wonder, why are they all packaged in together in this really tiny psalm? Well, you think about it. So if you hope in yourself, because it's saying hope in God, if you hope in yourself, well, that's pride. If you've got this pride that's stirred up in you, you're just like, I can do this. I can hope. I can do it. Me, me, me. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And you're determined. And then as soon as you start doing that, what you find is that you're reaching, one, for something much smaller than the salvation that God is offering you. And two, you still, even though it's earthly salvation, you can't even reach that. So you're discontent. But here, if, if you're in your home filled with pride, and if you will open the door and leave that pride behind, you'll, you'll see before you is a mountain in the distance. It's the mount of God. And if you will hope, it will set you out on a journey up that mountain. And once you get up there, you have him wrapping you up in his arms and you find contentment and rest. And then you go back home changed, different, rested, new. Without hope, you're never going to leave your home. And some of you are not hoping in God. I feel that myself. Like there's a lack of hope there. And you know what that will do? It will cause you to not set out on the journey. And if you don't set out on the journey, then you're stuck there in your home of pride that's continuing to make you look within. And eventually you will hit self-loathing. And you will continue to descend until you've descended into the abysses of hell. Or you look up to the mountain for hope and let him carry you there. This is the second shortest psalm, but the longest one to learn because it's a pilgrimage, it's a journey, it's an adventure. And this is about being disciplined enough to. Kill your pride every single day because every single day you got to walk out that door of that house of pride that you're stuck in and you have to hope and you have to hope and look up that mountain and let it take you on a journey to God. You've got to get good at that. And the way to get good at it is to see the journey that Christ took down to you. 
It's a discipline. Keep looking at him. Look at the journey he took. It's in, second, it's in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Listen to it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So he was worthy of all things, all fame, honor, glory, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because he has done that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in humility, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as soon as you bow down to him, he lifts you up in his resurrection. So you look at the one who humbled himself, though he was worthy of all the fame. And when you see that, you see he did it for your salvation, and he did it also to inspire you to do it as well. And so you have the same mind as Christ. And then you look at his contentment. He was rejected by our world. He was despised. He was killed and tortured. But he was always content with his Father. And you look at that and then you know you can be content in him and the Father. And then you see he was down in the abysses of death. The end of pride, where it leads. He went into the darkest parts of pride and he rose up out of it to give you hope. And so now that means you can leave this house of pride, walk out the doors, and in hope, look up at the mount of God and then start your pilgrimage. And it's not easy and it's long, but you take the trip because it's good and it's right. And you meet with him there on the mountain and you taste his grace and his beauty and his worth and it changes you and then you come back home changed. And not only that, now you begin to change others. And you begin to love and fight for people because now you're content. You don't have to fight for yourself anymore. You fight for them. And that's a good fight. Let's pray. Father, in your grace and mercy, we pray that you would help us fight our pride. That we would calmed and quieted our soul like a weaned child. That you would teach us how to do that as we look to you who have done it already. Jesus, when the world around you gave way, you stood content in your Father. Help us when the world around us gives way to stay content because we have a greater hope. Not in ourselves, but in you, our salvation.